Chapter Twenty Eight of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Eight. It was on the day following that which saw the visit of Guy de Margan to Richard de Ashby that the two lovers stood together at the open casement of one of the magnificent rooms in Lindwell Castle, with joy in their hearts such as they had never known before in life. They had thought, indeed, during the journey from Eltham to Nottingham, that it was hardly possible anything so bright and sweet could last as the dream-like and uncertain delight which they then enjoyed in each other's society, in the sort of toleration which their love received, and in the hopes to which that toleration gave rise. But now Hugh de Mothama had come with happier tidings still, and with his arm circling her he loved, her hand clasped in his, and her head leaning on his shoulder, he told her that her father had been with him for an hour that day, previous to his noon visit to the king, and had given his decided consent to their union. He had expressed some doubts, the lover said, as to her brother Allured's view of the matter, but had promised to take upon himself the task of bringing his son's fiery and intractable spirit to reason. And certain it is, that when the young nobleman left Nottingham Castle to proceed with his small train to Lindwell, the Earl of Ashby had fully and entirely made up his mind to bestow his daughter's hand upon Hugh de Mothama with as little delay as possible. Nor is it merely caprice which had produced so favourable a change of feeling in the present instance. Although he was, by nature, it must be confessed, somewhat capricious and undecided, he had always liked the young knight, even when the two houses of Ashby and Mothama were opposed to each other in former days. He had once or twice bestowed a caress upon the boy, when he had met him accidentally at the court of the king, and Hugh had shown a degree of affection for him in return, which had produced one of those impressions in his favour that time strengthens rather than effaces. Various circumstances had since caused him to vacillate, as we have seen, but when after the Battle of Evesham he found that Hugh was in high favour with the gallant prince, who had just saved his father's throne, when he saw the way open before him to the brightest career at the court of his sovereign, and remembered at the same time that he must inevitably unite in his own person all the power and fortune of the two great branches of his noble house, he felt that in a mere worldly point of view a better alliance could not be found throughout the land. He was, therefore, but little inclined to throw any obstacle in the way, and during the progress down to Nottingham, a progress which in those times occupied sixteen or seventeen days, he perceived two facts which fixed his resolution. First, that his daughter, whom he loved better than aught else on earth, had staked her happiness on a union with Hugh de Mothama and next that it was the earnest desire of edward though the prince did not make it a positive request that no obstacle should be thrown in the way of his friend's marriage with her he loved thus he himself had during that morning led the way to a conversation which ended in his promising lucy's hand to hugh de mothama and it had been arranged that as the king at the end of two days was to visit lindwell and be there entertained for a week the announcement of the approaching marriage should be publicly made on the morning of the monarch's arrival. Such were the happy tidings which Hugh himself bore over to Lucy, 
and they now stood at that window, gazing over the fair scene before their eyes, with feelings in their hearts which can never be known but once in life, feelings the same in their nature and their character in the bosom of each, though modified, of course, by sex, by habits, and by disposition. It was all joy and expectation, and the looking forward to the long bright days of mutual love. But with Lucy that joy was timid, agitating, overpowering. All her gay and sparkling cheerfulness sunk beneath the weight of happy hopes, as one sometimes sees a bee so overloaded with honey that he can scarce carry his sweet burden home. And she had neither a jest to throw away upon herself or anyone else but, as we have said, stood quiet and subdued by Hugh de Mothimer's side, his arm half-supporting her, and her head leaning on his shoulder. He, too, though always tender and kind towards her, seemed softened still more by the circumstances in which he was placed. Even the eager love within his bosom controlled itself, lest its ardour should alarm and agitate the gentle being, whom he now looked upon as all his own. He soothed her, he calmed her, his caresses were light and tender, and he even strove to win her thoughts away from the more agitating parts of the subject on which they rested, to those which would give her back firmness and tranquillity. He called her mind back to the day they had spent together in the forest, to the promises they had made, and to the restrictions she had placed upon hers. He acknowledged that it was better she had done so, but he added, I may now ask you, unhesitatingly, dear Lucy, to pledge me here the vow that you will soon make at the altar, and to tell me that you are mine, and will be for ever mine. Oh, willingly, willingly now, answered Lucy, withdrawing her hand for a moment and then giving it back again. Yours I am, Hugh, whatever betides, Yours and none but yours, yours through weal and woe, through life till death, oh yes, and even after death. And she hid her eyes for a moment on his bosom, with the sweet tears of happy emotion rising in them, till they well nigh overrang the dark fringed lid. Then turning again to the view before their eyes, they both gazed forth in silence, with their hearts full and their minds busy. Alas, poor lovers, they little knew that their fate was like the changeful autumn day, whose clouds and sunshine were sweeping rapidly over the wide forest scene on which they looked, now sparkling in the full glory of light, and the next moment, ere one could see the storm in its approach, dark and heavy with the raindrops rushing down and tearing the brown leaves from the fading trees. One of those heavy showers had just cleared away, and the rays of the sun were sparkling again over the jewelled ground, when, about half an hour after Hugh's arrival, a large and splendid train was seen coming across the green slopes from Nottingham, betokening the return of the Earl. He rode on quickly, and Lucy and her lover advanced into the richly carved stone balcony to wave the hand and welcome him back with looks that spoke their gratitude and joy. But the Earl did not raise his eyes, and both Hugh and his fair companion perceived, as he approached, that in the train of the Earl were several gentlemen not belonging to his own household. A moment or two after, steps were heard ascending, and as there were now many, Lucy darted away through a small door which led 
by another staircase to her own apartments, believing that her father was bringing some strangers to the castle, and wishing to remove the traces of recent agitation from her countenance before she met them. Eudemothema was not long left alone. Lucy was scarcely gone when, when the voice of the Earl of Ashby was heard speaking to some of those who had accompanied him. "'Stay you here, gentlemen,' he said. "'He will return with you to the king. Be not afraid. I will be his surety. Let me speak with him first. And the next instant the Earl entered the hall with his eyes bent upon the ground and a cloud upon his brow. Though conscious of perfect innocence and knowing of no danger that was likely to befall him, the heart of Hugh de Mothama sunk at the words which he heard the Lord de Ashby utter. They came upon his ear like the announcement of new misfortunes, of new obstacles between Lucy and himself. It is true they might have meant a thousand other things. They might have referred even to some other person. But how often do we see a boy in the midst of a sunshiny holiday take alarm at the shadow of a light cloud and fancy that a storm is coming on? Eudemothema was too brightly happy not to tremble, lest his happiness should pass away like a dream. Advancing then rapidly towards the earl, he said with his usual frank and generous bearing, "'What is the matter, my noble lord? You seem sad and downcast, though you were so gay and cheerful this morning.' "'Everything has changed since this morning, sir,' answered the earl, "'and my mood with the rest. The king forbids your marriage with my daughter.' and as my consent was but conditional, Hugh's indignation would not bear restraint. This is most unjust and tyrannical, he replied aloud, but I do believe someone has poisoned the king's mind against me, for until yesterday morning he was all favour and kindness. Prince Edward is now absent, and some villain has taken advantage thereof to abuse the monarch's ear. Of that I know nothing, answered the earl coldly, but at all events, he has forbidden the marriage, and consequently I require you to give me back my plighted word that it should take place. Never! exclaimed Hugh de Mothama vehemently. Never! I will never be accessory to my own bitter and unjust disappointment. You may, my lord, if you will, but I do not think you will. You may break your promise, you may withdraw your consent, but it shall be your own act and none of mine. I stand before you here as honest and innocent of all offence as ever man was, and if there was no cause this morning why you should refuse me your dear daughter's hand, there is none now. There is, there is, cried the earl sharply, the king's express command. Given upon some false showing, said Hugh de Mothama, I will go to him this moment. I will dare my accusers to bring forward their charge to my face. I will prove their falsehood upon them first by show of witnesses, and next by arms, and bitterly shall they repent the day that they dared sully my name by a word. I know them, I know who they are, and their contrivances right well. I had a warning of their being near last night. I do beseech you, my lord, tell me, of what do they accuse me, and fear not that I will soon exculpate myself. Nay, I know not accurately, Hugh, "'replied the Earl, in a kindlier tone than he had hitherto used. "'I have heard, however, that there is a charge against you, "'a general charge of conspiring with those enemies of the State "'who have been striving to raise once more "'the standard of rebellion in the North and in the marches of Wales. 
"'It is false! It is as false as hell!' cried Hugh. But then, after a moment, growing calmer, he took the old earl's hand, saying, "'Forgive me, my dear lord, if, in the heat of so bitter a disappointment, I have said anything that could pain or offend you. Forgive me, I entreat you, and promise me two things.' "'What are they, my good lord?' demanded the earl. "'I will, if they are meet and reasonable.' Hugh de Mothama lowered his voice from the tone in which he had before been speaking, and replied, "'They are meet and reasonable, my lord, or I would not ask them. First, promise me that the moment I am gone you will write a letter to Prince Edward, telling him that his humble friend, Hugh de Mothama, is accused of crimes which he declares he never dreamt of. Beseech him to return with all speed to see justice done, and send the packet by a trusty messenger to Derby, where the prince now lies.' "'I will, I will,' answered the earl. "'It shall be done within an hour. "'But what more, Hugh, what more?' "'This, my dear lord,' replied the young nobleman, "'your messenger will reach Derby to-night, "'and, if I know Prince Edward rightly, "'ere to-morrow's sun be an hour declined from high noon, "'he will be in Nottingham. "'I will beseech the king to wait till that moment "'to hear my full defence. "'What I ask, then, is that you will meet me in the presence and, if you cannot lay your hand upon your heart and say that you believe me guilty, you will renew your promise of dear Lucy's hand and urge the king with me to give his consent likewise. The old lord hesitated, but at length answered, Well. Then now farewell, my lord, said Hugh de Mothama. I must not stay till your dear daughter comes. After the happy hour we passed but now together, twould well nigh break my heart to see her under other circumstances. Thus saying, he wrung the old man's hand and strode towards the door, but turning for an instant before he quitted the chamber, he saw that the earl stood fixed in the midst of the hall, with a hesitating air, and he added aloud, "'You will not fail, my lord.' "'No, no,' replied the earl. "'I will meet you at the hour you named.' "'Fear not, I will not fail.' There was a wide landing-place between the top of the stairs and the door of the hall, and Hugh de Mothama found it crowded with gentlemen belonging to Henry's court. The moment he appeared, Sir Guy de Margan advanced towards him, saying, "'Lord Hugh de Mothama, I am commanded by the king—' But Hugh interrupted his address, frowning upon him sternly. "'To summon me to his majesty's presence,' he said, "'I go thither at once, sir, and that is enough. "'Take care, Sir Guy de Margan,' he added, "'seeing him still approaching him. "'Remember, I am not fond of your close presence.' "'And he brought the hilt of his long sword nearer to his right hand, "'striding onward to the top of the staircase, as he did so. "'While the gentleman who occupied the landing, "'not exactly liking the expression of his countenance, "'made way for him on either side,' and Guy de Margan bit his lip with an angry frown, not daring to approach too closely. The young nobleman's horse and the attendants who had accompanied him were ready in the court, and springing into the saddle without giving the slightest attention to those who followed, he shook his bridle rein and galloped on towards Nottingham. The others came after at full speed, and both parties entered the city and passed the gates of the castle almost at the same moment. Dismounting from his horse, Hugh proceeded at once towards the royal apartments, leaving several of the pages and attendants behind him unquestioned on his way. 
In the anteroom of the audience chamber he met William de Valence, for the time one of the prime favourites of the monarch, and stopping him he asked, "'Can I speak with His Majesty, my Lord of Pembroke? "'I find I have been accused wrongfully and must clear myself.' "'His Grace expects your Lordship,' answered the Earl with an icy look, "'but he expects to see you in custody.' "'There was no need, sir,' replied Hugh. "'I fear not to meet my king, and never need force to make me face my foes. "'Will you bring me to the presence? That is all I require.' "'Follow me, then,' said the Earl and opening the door he announced the arrival of the young knight to Henry, who immediately ordered him to be brought in. The monarch was seated near a table, with, with the Lord Mortimer standing by him. They were apparently jesting upon some subject, for both were smiling when Hugh de Mothama entered. But the moment the weak and tyrannical sovereign's eyes fell upon him, an angry scowl came upon his countenance, which brought King John strongly back to the minds of those who remembered that feeble and cold-blooded prince. "'So, sir,' said Henry, "'you have come of your accord to meet the reward of your high merits.' "'I come, your grace,' replied Hugh, bowing low, "'to meet my accusers in your royal presence, and to give them the lie in their teeth, if they dare to charge me with any act contrary to my allegiance or my duty.' "'What?' said the king, was consorting with de Montford, was fighting at Evesham, not contrary to your allegiance? Oh, my lord, answered Hugh, if the charge goes as far back as that, I must plead both your grace's special pardon and your general amnesty to all who laid down their arms, made submission and offended not again. But you have offended again, exclaimed the king. That is the chief charge against you. And whoever does make it, replied Hugh de Mothama, is a false and perjured traitor, and I will prove it upon him, either by investigation before your majesty, or by wager of battle, my body against his, with God for the judge. Nay, nay, sir, said Henry, we know your strength and skill in arms right well, and this is not a case where we will trust plain justice to be turned from its course by a strong man and a bold but perverse heart. We ourselves will be your accuser, with whom there can be no wager of battle, and those we call to prove your crime shall be but witnesses. My lord, that cannot be, replied Hugh boldly. My king will never be judge and accuser, both in one. Then you shall have other judges, cried the monarch. Your peers shall judge you. But if you be truly innocent, you will not scruple now to answer at once the charges made against you. It is for that I come, replied the young knight, unprepared, not knowing what these charges are, I come to meet them as I may. I pray you, let me hear them. While he and the king had been speaking, a number of new faces had appeared in the audience chamber, comprising all those who had followed the young nobleman from Lindwell, and Henry, running his eye over them, exclaimed, Stand forth, Guy de Margan, and you, Hugh Fitzhugh, and you, Sir William Geary, come near also, and say of what you accused. "'Lord Hugh de Mothama.' "'Faith, sire,' replied Sir William Geary, "'with his usual sarcastic grin, "'I accuse the noble knight of nothing. "'I was at the pass of arms at Northampton, my lord, "'when he unhorsed the four best lances in the field. "'Now I never was particularly strong in the knees, "'and moreover I'm getting somewhat rusty with years. "'So God forbid that I should accuse any man "'who talks of the wager of battle.' When I heard it, I trembled almost as much as Sir Guy de Margan here. 
"'It is false, I trembled not,' exclaimed Sir Guy. "'True, true,' answered the other. "'You only shook and looked sickly.' "'Sir William Geary,' cried the king, "'this is no jesting matter. "'Speak what it was you told me that you saw.' "'I saw a fat monk,' replied Sir William Geary, "'whose inclination for a joke could hardly be restrained. "'A jolly monk, as ever my eyes rested upon. "'And this fat monk, sire,' he continued more seriously, "'seeing that the king was becoming angry, "'stopped and asked his way to the apartments of the noble lord.' He jested as wittingly with Sir Harry Gray as a court fool does with a thick-headed country lad. But when he had gone on his way, Sir Guy de Margan here, a very serious and reputable youth, as your majesty knows, told me in mysterious secrecy that the friar was a very treacherous piece of fat indeed, a traitor's messenger, a go-between of rebels, a personage whom he had himself known with Sir William Lemwood, and the rest in the marches of wales so inviting him sweetly into my chamber we two watched together for the monks going forth from the noble lord's apartments which was not for more than an hour in the meantime pious sir guy entertained me with his shrewd suspicions of how the monk and the valiant knight were hatching treason together which as you know sire is a cockatrice's egg laid by male fowls and hatched by dragons looking at it a very pretty allegory of a conspiracy if we did but read fools for fowls that by the way but to return to my tale the monk at length appeared in the courtyard again and shortly after the lord hugh de mothomer him following thereupon one of those irresistible inclinations which set the legs in motion whether man will or not seized upon me and good sir guy and drawn as if by that rock of adamant on which the earl is fixed, we pursued, without power of resistance, the path of knight and friar. Just at the gate of the city we found our ascetic friend mounted on a mule, and holding a horse for his knightly acquaintance, on which we saw the gallant lord spring, and after that they rode away together. This is all I have to say, sire, and what I have said is true, but far be it from me to take any accusation against a knight who can squeeze a horse to death between his two knees, or stop a charger in full course by catching hold of an iron ring, and grasping the beast with his two legs. "'What have you to answer, sir?' demanded the king, turning to Hugh. "'Simply that I saw a monk yesterday, sire,' replied the young nobleman, "'and that he stayed with me nearly an hour, talking much of venison and somewhat of hunting.' He may, from his language, have committed the crime of taking a fat buck, when he had no right to do so, but, by my faith, that is the only treason I should suspect him of, and not one word did he utter in my presence, either about risings, rebellions, or aught else that could move your royal displeasure. Ha! What say you to this, Sir Guy de Margan? asked the king. Tell us, who is this friar? Is he a rebel, or is he not?' "'Notoriously so, my lord,' replied Guy de Margan. "'I found him with Lemwood and the other traitors to whom you, sire, sent me for the purpose of negotiation, and it would seem that he had come to comfort them with promises of assistance from the north.' "'But yet that does not prove,' said Mortimer, "'that the Lord Hugh held any treasonable converse with him. His business with that good lord might have been of a very simple kind.' Malevolent injustice becomes most dangerous when it assumes the garb of equity. 
and Mortimer, who knew the whole that was to come, only assumed the style of an impartial judge, that his after-persecution of the young nobleman might seem dictated by a sense of justice. "'It might have been so, indeed,' replied Glyde de Margan, "'had it but been a visit from the friar to my lord of Mothomer. "'But their setting forth together would seem strange, "'and the secrecy observed in the monk quitting the castle first "'and the knight following at a little distance renders it more strange still. "'Perhaps Lord Hugh will condescend to explain why he went and where.' "'Methinks,' answered Hugh, "'that the honourable spies who crept after my footsteps "'from the castle to the town gate "'might have carried their inquiries a little farther "'when they would have saved the necessity of such questions here.' "'In regard to one point,' said Hugh Fitzhugh, "'a large, burly Norman gentleman, "'in regard to one point, I at least can give some explanation. "'What he went for, I can but divine, "'but where he went I know right well. He rode out with all speed to the forest, for I saw him there with this same monk they mention. The truth is, I had somewhat missed my way, and coming through some of the by-paths of the wood, I suddenly chanced upon a party of five persons in deep and earnest conversation. Three of them had visits on their faces too, and the two that were unmasked were Hugh de Mothomer and the friar we have heard of. Now, my lord the king, unless he explained that, we have no explanation at all. "'but your wisdom will judge.' "'Let him explain if he will,' said the king, "'or rather, if he can. "'I doubt it much, but I am willing to hear.' "'My lord,' replied Hugh de Mothomer, "'for once in their lives these noble gentlemen have told the truth. "'I did go out after the priest. "'I did accompany him to the forest. "'I did meet three men there, "'but with no evil purpose, "'nor did one word transpire which any man could call treason.' "'Who were the men you went to see?' demanded the king. "'Nay, sire,' replied Hugh, "'if I give not their names. "'My accusers, if they charge me with crime, "'must show that I have been guilty of it. "'Now no such thing is ever attempted to be proved. "'All they assert is that I spoke with a friar, "'rode out with a friar, "'and was seen conversing with three unknown persons in Sherwood. "'If this be held as treason, God defend the innocent.' "'But, my good lord,' said Mortimer, to whom the king turned his eyes, "'it is shown that this friar, who took you forth to speak with three other men, "'is himself a notorious traitor, "'and you must show that the others were not so also, "'or the imputation will lie against you of consorting with "'and concealing the counsel of the king's enemies.' "'Which is a high crime, my lord,' added Henry sternly. "'Hugh de Mothomer gazed down thoughtfully on the ground for a moment,' for he found that he was placed in a situation of much greater difficulty and danger than he imagined. But looking up at length, he answered, "'My lord the king, I am here in this presence without friends or counsellors to aid or to assist me. I have come without forethought or preparation, as fast as my horse would bear me, to answer a charge cunningly contrived beforehand by my enemies. I do beseech you, Give me but four-and-twenty hours to consider well how I ought to act. If I may have any one to advise with me, I shall esteem it as a grace, but if not, at all events, let me have time for thought myself. I know that I can prove my innocence beyond all doubt if I have time to do it. You shall have time and counsel too, replied the king, but it shall be under custody. 
My Lord of Mortimer, attach him in our name. Let him be conveyed to his chamber, set a strong guard upon the door, and give access to any one of his servants, but not more, that he may have free leave to send for what counsellor he will. Let that counsellor visit him, and as he asks for four and twenty hours, bring him before us again at this time to-morrow. The Earl of Mortimer took a few steps forward, as if to attach the young nobleman for high treason, but Hugh de Motham bowed his head, saying, I surrender myself willingly, my lord, and fixing my full reliance on the king's justice, await the event of to-morrow without fear. He then left the presence under the custody of Mortimer, and was conducted to the chamber which he had occupied since his arrival at Nottingham, and which comprised, as was usually the case with those assigned to noblemen of high rank, a bedroom for himself and an anteroom, across the entrance of which one or two of his attendants usually slept, barring all dangerous access to their lord during the night. Having beckoned some of the king's guard as they passed along, Mortimer stationed two soldiers at the door of the anteroom and took measures for their regular relief on the rounds. He then entered with his prisoner, and finding stout Tom Blorkett in the anteroom, he asked whether the young nobleman would choose him as the attendant who would be permitted to wait upon him, or would send for another. "'I should have asked for him, my lord, had I not found him here,' replied Hugh. "'I thank you for your courtesy, however, and trust that the time may come when, having proved my innocence, I may repay it.' "'I hope to see you soon at liberty,' rejoined Mortimer, with a dark smile, and retiring from the chamber he ordered another guard to be stationed at the foot of the staircase. No sooner was he gone than Hall called the stout yeoman into the inner room and bade him shut the door. "'Nay, look not downcast, Blorkett,' he said as the man entered with a sad and apprehensive look. "'This storm will soon pass away. Indeed, it would have been dissipated already, but that I was embarrassed by a matter which will be joyful tidings to you.' "'I know what you would say, my lord,' replied the good yeoman, "'for since we have been here I have heard of the noble earl. That urchin boy who served you some time at Hereford sprang up behind me one day when I was crossing the forest, and told me all about it. "'Well then, Blorkett, continued Hugh, "'no time is to be lost. "'Get to your horse's back with all speed, "'and ride along upon the east side of Sherwood, "'taking the Southwell Road till you come to the Mere Mark. "'A tall post painted with red stripes. "'There turn into the wood for some five hundred yards "'and sound three mots upon your horn. "'Whoever comes to you will lead you to my uncle.' tell him I have been watched, that the man who passed while we were speaking together yesterday recognised me, and combining that fact with others has given a face of truth to an accusation of treason against me. Show him that I dare not say who it was I met, lest the forest should be searched and his retreat discovered. When twenty-four hours are over, however, I must speak, if I would save my head from the axe, for I see there is a dark conspiracy against me, and I am without support. Beseech him to put as many miles as may be between himself and Nottingham, ere this hour to-morrow, for the king's wrath burns as fiercely against him as ever. Away, good Blorkett, away. Should any one stop you and ask you where you are going, save for Master Roger Moore, a clerk well skilled in the laws, and lose no time. I will not spare the spur, my lord, replied Blorkett, and withdrew, 
leaving Hugh de Mothama in meditations which were sad and gloomy, notwithstanding all his efforts to convince himself that no real danger hung over him. End of chapter 28